Hello, my name is Adrian Goldberg and welcome to The Liquidator, the strictly 100% unofficial fan-powered West Bromwich Albion podcast. This week, the bag is sent to Coventry and returning home with three points in the bag. Is this the relaunch of Big Val's promotion wagon? Is the show on the road or will it prove to be another false dawn? Plus, a planned protest against Albion's owners and three players under the spotlight. Taylor Garden, Hickman, Jordan Hugill, and, say it quietly, Dwight Gale. As usual, I'm joined by my regular co-host, the author of From Buzaglo to Ballis, Chris Lepkowski. Chris, how are you doing? You all right? Yeah, good, thank you. Not too bad. Good, good, good. Well, let's uh, start with some joyous news and Albion away victory at Coventry. The Previously named Rico Arena. What's it called now? The CBS Stadium, Coventry Building Society Stadium, not to be confused with a stadium named after a, a big record label. We've never lost there. I don't think we've ever lost in the whatever it was, however many years that stadium has been opened. And it, I thought this was a, a very decent Albion performance. Actually, I think we've. it was the first time on Saturday that we'd conceded a goal there. Um, I might be wrong on that, but... I think our record is something like 4-0-5-0-0-0. So, um, you know, it was a deserved victory. First half, I thought we were dominant, really gelled well. I mean, it was a great pass by Robinson to Grant, really good finish. A little bit of good fortune about the second goal. But I thought, you know, I thought we... There were really some really good performances across the field. I thought we did more than enough to take the win. And, you know, it was a bit wobbly, in the second half, I think Coventry changed the way they played and made that half-time change. They started to get a lot closer to Albion, which I felt they gave us way, way too much space, especially in, in, in our final third in the first half. And, you know, they responded to that. And we did well. It was a really, you know, I described it as a really big win rather than a really great win. It's a, it's a kind of win that, you know, when you've been in a bad place and, and certainly in the last few away games, we have been in that place. It you you need that kind of victory that just resets everything and, and re refocuses minds. And hopefully that's come now. Yeah, well, I think it was a, a good performance as well. I mean, it was a bit nervy towards the end once Coventry had got their goal back and. Yeah, you're right. That second goal that we scored, which was uh, credited as an own goal to McFadzine. That should have been ruled out, and under VAR, it would have been. But that's the rub of the green. Why do you think that? And ball. I'm not so sure it would have been ruled out. These days, any ball to hand tends to be ruled out as as and ball in the Premier League. I've just looked this up, by the way, um, the, the handball, and it does say, and this is on the International Football Association board, the IFAB, changed how handball is interpreted, okay? An arm extended away from the body that makes the body bigger in an unnatural position. If that ball strikes that arm, particularly if it is blocking a shot on goal, there is a greater likelihood we will penalise that. The second change is on an accidental handball in the immediate build-up to a goal. If an attacking player's accidental handball immediately precedes another player scoring, which indeed it was a known goal, the goal will now be awarded when last season it was likely to have been ruled out. So I guess the interpretation there is, was it an accidental handball by Kipre or did he motion his arm to the ball? So I think there's a bit of clarity there. Well, I suppose it just shows that tinkering with the laws leaves even seasoned fans like us a little bit in the dark. But I'm pretty sure that any contact with the hand or nearly any contact with the hand in the Premier League 
is classed as handball these days. I mean, I, I don't agree with it. I think intentionality for a handball is pretty clear to me. And I don't think there was an intention by Kipre. But my understanding of the law as it stands is that it would have been handball and certainly the the Sky commentary team thought that it would have been ruled out in the Premier League. They were under no doubt about that, but whatever. Oh, my point was that yeah, there was a, a game a few matches ago when Dean Garner was clearly pushed over in the penalty area and we didn't get a penalty. That's the, that's the look of the draw, I suppose. But I certainly thought on our first half performance, we were really much the better team than Coventry. They had the moment when the ball deflected off Kyle Bartley's boot in the first half and hit the post. I can't remember a serious save that Sam Johnson had to make, though. And although they did tweak it in the second half, their main attacking thrust seemed to be the ball over the top, hoping to catch us on the fact that that we defend quite high up on the pitch. Not least thanks to some pretty excellent last-ditch defending by all of the three central defenders, we managed to keep them at bay and our defensive record, even though at times we do look very shaky at the back and do look vulnerable, our defensive record bears comparison with anybody in the division. It's one of the best defensive records in the whole of the championship. And I, I thought really, although as a fan, you're always nervous because it's only a, a one goal lead and you're, oh, they're going to equalise. But actually, I thought, yeah, we kept them out pretty well. Although we had that period where Coventry were dominant, I never felt we were going to concede at second goal, you know, even though there were a good 10 minutes left, including injury time, I I felt quite confident. The thing that I felt maybe we lost a little bit of momentum was up front. I thought certainly at the start, there was some good link up play. We saw the goal from Grant after Robinson's pass, but I thought... At times, we slowed things down a little bit too much up front, especially Robinson. There were times where I felt that we could have made more of the space that Coventry defenders were presenting to us. There were gaps where I thought we could have exploited it. And I thought at times we were a little bit laboured, a little bit pedestrian. And that, that was a little bit, you know, that was disappointing because I felt that we were in control in that in that period of game and we could have done more. But, you know, the, the changes were made. We took Robinson and Dean Garner off. And, you know, Coventry did improve. I think they improved throughout their their spine, which really helped them and to our disadvantage. But I never felt, Adrian, at any point of a, you know, even when we conceded that goal, they never looked like they were going to beat Sam Johnston. They just didn't have any shots that I felt were going to trouble us. And, you know, so it proved. I think I said on the last podcast, if... uh... Big Val walks now, I wouldn't be sad. If he keeps turning out performances like that from the team, then obviously I would be sad to see him go because it was a good performance. I think we ought to to give him credit and the team credit under pressure. And after a pretty sticky run, they did pretty well against a side who themselves are, are hoping to make the playoffs this season. The player of the match, according to Sky, was Taylor Gardner-Hickman. I know the TV companies kind of love a good story, don't they? So he only had, I think, to play a half-decent game to win that Man of the Match award. But I don't want to be mean to him. I think he played very well in central midfield. And I come back to a point we've made on the pod before. 
the athleticism that you can offer, whether it's through Malumbi or Taylor Gardner-Hickman when Livermore isn't there, does make a difference. It really does change the dynamic of the team. And he was everywhere covering ground. I thought Moa also might have had a shout for Man of the Match in fairness. He was energetic as well and tigerish in the tackle, as he always is. But Taylor Gardner-Hickman, I think this is his... uh, third league game this season, his fourth overall when you factor in his debut in the League Cup against Arsenal and he's certainly catching the eye. He and Mowat looked our best combination this season. I know it's very easy to say that after one good performance but what I liked about Gardner Hickman, he was very positive in his passing and I think too often in the past when Livermore and Mowat have played or any any two of that combination of midfielders, Malumbi included, we don't always play offensively from midfield. We often hold the ball too often. And I felt Taylor Hickman did that. He was more adventurous. He was willing to play the ball into the final third a lot more often than some of his peers have in the past. And I, I think it was a really positive performance from somebody. And, and I said this on Saturday, I've not seen enough of him yet to work out or now his best position. I think he's shown that he's fairly flexible, versatile in, in terms of what he can do. And he looked an extremely positive influence in terms of our attacking threat. And I, I'd like to think he might get another run out. I, I'm not so sure he will, because obviously we know Ismail has been fond of playing Livermore whenever he's been available. I think Mowat certainly justified his place. And if there is to be somebody who misses out, it probably is Gardner Hickman. But I'd like... I'd like to think that in a fair world, he would keep his place because he certainly produced a performance and has done in recent, you know, whenever he's played, that's warranted him playing. So um, he fully deserved that award. The, the one thing, the one little quibble I have about Ismail, I thought at times towards Coventry's dominance, I felt maybe we could have tweaked a little bit something defensively just to make us a little bit less vulnerable. I know I said I'm kind of going against what I said earlier about Johnston not really being threatened, but I thought Coventry had too much of the ball at times in that final third. And I know he brought on, I think it was a Jai, didn't he, towards the end. I thought that could have been made a little bit earlier. But listen, you know, we've given him criticism in recent weeks. We've we've talked about his future, maybe unfairly, some might say, but, you know, credit to him when we win. And we play with a bit of energy and a little bit of intensity. I think it's what we want and, and we're quite happy to see results like that and performances like that. Because it, if it's another step towards him nailing his best team and the style that suits us best, then that's great. Because I think that's what we want. We want to see progress. The complaint really this season is that when we've played with that kind of intensity and we did have a degree of intensity against Coventry and when we played the ball on the ground up front as we did or attempted to do at times, we've looked a good side, but we haven't been able to replicate that from one week to the next. I think in a very early podcast this season, we described Albion as a Jekyll and Hyde team. It's an obvious football cliche, but we are. And I think now we need to say, okay, this is the moment when we stop being a Jekyll and Hyde team. This is where we need to step up and prove that 
we can be a match if not for Fulham, then certainly for Bournemouth and put ourselves within striking distance of a top two position, which would be uh, great to see. Taylor Gardner-Hickman, by the way, in the game against Arsenal, played in quite an advanced position, if I remember rightly, on the left-hand side. He then made his league debut as the right wing-back in place of Furlong, and then against Coventry, he's playing in centre midfield. So that speaks of a very versatile footballer. For me, the best midfield partnership and the best central midfield performance of the season was Moa to Malumbi when we hammered Bristol City. But I think that Gardner Hickman with Mowit was up there with that. I suppose Livermore and Mowit might claim the credit for the destruction of Sheffield United. What I felt when Gardner Hickman played right back in place of Furlong, I think his positional sense wasn't always spot on. And that's understandable with a young player. I actually think you can cover that a little bit more in midfield. And I think that his energy and his athleticism, for me, make him a player who who perhaps should be starting there rather than at right wing back. But he's shown a lot of versatility. He's shown a lot of application. I think fans will question it again if against Reading he isn't chosen and Livermore comes back. His suspension is now over. He is available against Reading. So uh, big decision for big Val. Hmm. And I think, uh, I certainly think he should be sticking with Gardner Hickman. And I suspect most fans would as well, quite honestly. Another player who's under the spotlight, Jordan Hugill. It's been reported that Norwich want him back, as is their right. They've obviously got a new manager in Dean Smith who presumably wants to just take a look at all the players that he's got available and see what they might have to offer. Hugo really tried hard against Coventry, really worked, put a shift in, as they say, when he when he came on. I understand why fans have a bit of a downer on Hugo, but the miss in the final minutes of the, the game against Nottingham Forest was an absolute shocker at any level of football. But he's not a player who who was ever shirked for me. He almost certainly isn't good enough, or he's not in a good enough run of form, I don't think, to justify keeping him on if Norwich want him back. But I think he's an honest pro. He just is what he is, quite honestly, which is a frankly rather limited championship player. That's kind of the minimum, isn't it? I mean, you know, we say he's an honest player, he works hard. Well, yeah, so he should. And and that's kind of the, the job. And... I'm a little bit surprised that Norwich have been reportedly, you know, reported to want him back. Doesn't really say much for where their season might be going because I, I have my doubts as to whether he's good enough for the Championship, let alone the Premier League. But, you know, he's their player. We probably haven't used him as often as they would have expected us. You know, even though he has featured in many of the games, they, they perhaps wanted him as a more regular starter. And what it might do, it might free up wages and, and an opportunity for us to bring in a different player and somebody who is perhaps more adept in front of goal, somebody who can finish, somebody who might not have the same work rate that Hugo has or the same application, which you can't deny is there. But it might be somebody who can maybe score one of those chances against Forest or maybe return more than one goal in 17 outings. So, you know, it's if Norwich want him back, fine, good. You know, thank you very much. But I would like to think it opens up another door where we might be able to bring in somebody better and somebody who can convert more. The name I've seen linked with Albion to potentially replace him, I've seen a couple actually. The name that will excite some fans anyway is that of Dwight Gale. 
the story I saw was that us and Forrest were supposedly keen in terms of wanting to sign him on loan with a view to a permanent deal if we go up. And there are a few things about that. First, I'm always very mindful of any player that's linked with more than two or three clubs. It normally means an agent is shoveling do you know what around to journalists and, and giving them a story while circulating his player. I don't doubt that he will be available by, you know, or made available by Newcastle because he's you know, it's clearly not in their plans. Now, in terms of us signing him, let's say that we sign him on loan. I wouldn't have an issue with that. I'm not 100% convinced he suits us, but, to, you know, if the question is, is he better than what we've got, then yes, clearly he is, even at 32. What I'm not so excited or, or less sure about is this notion that if we do sign him and go up, then we're obligated to, to actually buy him permanently because over the last few years, he has clearly proven and clearly shown that he isn't a Premier League footballer, what you would want in the Premier League. And if we are to go up, then I would hope that we would be able to bring in a player of a better standard, somebody who can play in the Premier League rather than waste a wage on, on somebody who's shown that he isn't quite up to it and somebody who will then be approaching their mid-30s, you know. And on loan, yes, permanently no is basically my my verdict on that. Yeah, I tend to agree with you. I think that you can get players in the twilight of their career, even forward players uh, like Kevin Phillips, for example. And Phillips had uh, a, a kind of slightly suspect injury record about him, but was a, a fantastic player for Albion, one of my favourite Baggies players. He was a long, long way ahead of what Dwight Gale is, uh, let's be honest. I mean, he was a proven Premier League footballer, won the Golden Boot, you know, played for England. He was head and shoulders above what Dwight Gale has been and, and is and will be. And I'll take your point. I mean, what I liked about Phillips, actually, is that he adapted his game. And he showed at West Brom that he was more than the goal poacher that many of us thought he was at Sunderland and Watford. Actually, he could do a lot more. I'm not so sure Dwight Gale has that in him. And, and that's not a criticism of Dwight Gale. I think he's a really good finisher and a good striker for our level. I just don't think that as a long-term option, he's a viable one. His record for Albion was phenomenal. 23 goals in 39 games. And he went back to Newcastle partly to see if he could prove that he is a Premier League striker. And sadly, he's never done that, has he? Partly, it has to be said, his career at Newcastle blighted by injury. He's got a kind of one in three goal scoring record for Newcastle. But most of those goals for Newcastle scored in the Championship. His record elsewhere has got a all right. It's not a phenomenal record. And I'm just thinking that if we do sign him, we'll be paying absolute top dollar. I mean, I'm dubious, actually, that whether we would pay the kind of wages that Gale can expect to command. This will probably be his last big career move. And I'm guessing he'll be on or looking for 50, 60 grand a week. And then with bonuses, if we get promoted and all that stuff. And like you, I just think, there is nothing to suggest in his career record that a 33-year-old Dwight Gale, if we're in the Prem with him, would be a menace to Premier League defences. And this, this I think, is where we kind of have to look at the kind of job that Ismail has and the strategy and the vision that the club has, because it might mean that you would look lower down the leagues and sign a striker who's going to come good in a year or two if you've spotted him 
right and you know that he's a player who's going to come through but just needs more games at this level, I would take that. Gale would feel to me like partly a sentimental signing. Oh, he did well for us a couple of years ago. And unquestionably as well, a short-term signing. So I'd welcome him back. If we can have him for the last five, six months of the season, brilliant. But like you, I just I, there is no future in uh, to quote the Sex Pistols in in signing Dwight Gale on a on what would no doubt be a two or three year contract. I must admit, I've never heard that Sex Pistols song. But uh... lining God save the Queen, no future, no future. Yeah, I've heard that one. I, I thought there was no future in signing a player on a two year deal. I thought that was an Amazon. <laughs> It's on their um, their rarely heard second album, Chris. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you raised a really interesting notion there that you know why don't we look lower down? I remember a few years ago when Roy Hodgson, going back a long time now, was manager, and there was this young lad who was knocking them in for Fleetwood, who um, we were keen on, and Jeremy Peace just wasn't willing to pull pull the um, pull out all the stops to buy that, and. You know, Jamie Vardy went on to have a decent career, didn't he? Even Tony, now doing well at Brentford. What do you mean, even Tony? Isn't it Ivan Tony? Sorry, Ivan Tony. Ivan Tony, of course. <laughs> oh, is it even Ivan? <laughs> I was using the Russian version. And... <laughs> <laughs> he's not Russian, though, is he? No, he's not. But, um, he, you know, he was somebody we looked up when he was lower down. I think he was at, was it Peterborough? Yeah. So, you know, we, we have looked at those players before. And, you know, I remember we signed Simon Cox years ago from Reading. He did all right for us in the championship. Yeah, championship so, you yeah. know, those players, they're the most famous one of all, of course, Lee Hughes, who, who came from non-league and, and did a, a phenomenal job until it all went wrong for him. And those players are there. What you have to do is to obviously do your scouting, do your networking, find out the kind of characters they are. Are they likely to step up? Either? Are they suited for what we want, suited for more elite level of football. And if they are, maybe occasionally we need to take a risk like that, you know? Yeah, well, that list, by the way, of players we've missed on our doorstep goes grows ever longer at Blues. Both Nathan Redmond and Damari Gray were looking good for Birmingham City and clearly attracted the attention of other clubs. Damari Gray came on a sub against us in an FA Cup game where I think Sick Vic... Victor and Ichibi scored the only goal of the game. But Damari Gray came on a sub late on and hit the bar. You just think something would twig there. He's, he's had a very decent top-level career. Redmond's had an excellent top-flight career. And I remember watching Callum Wilson playing for Coventry. Yes, this was a yeah. game I saw at Northampton. Coventry beat Warsaw. There are people who are paid good money to go out and watch these players who somehow thought Callum Wilson wasn't good enough for Albion, well, he's good enough to play for a Premier League team, isn't he? I think that's the problem. You know, often these decisions were made when we were in the Premier League and we needed the players to hit the ground and not be kind of developed. I suppose Rob Earnshaw was a good example of one we got right. But 
only just just about got it right. You know, he, had he taken a couple of more weeks to start scoring goals, we might not have gotten enough points later on that year to stay up. And maybe had things worked out differently under Gary Megson, he might have scored a few goals earlier. So you never know. But, you know, we took a lot of these chances as a Premier League, or rather didn't take these chances when the Premier League. We're not there now. We're in the Championship. And maybe we do need to have a look at those players, have a look at, who's doing well, who can bring something to this team. Because, you know, we've got a very distinctive way that Ismail wants us to play. And there are players out there who might have only scored 10, 12 goals this year, but who might really, really bring something to our team. It's not all about getting that 30 goal a season player. Sometimes you have to bring in the kind of player that suits your system. That's what he tried to do with Hugh Gill. It just hasn't worked and he's not good enough. But, you know, you know, you might just find somebody who is and who can score goals. I want to talk about the uh, protest that's been mooted as well. I'm sure you've seen about that on social media, Chris. Talk of a protest before the Reading game. Yeah, I think certain element of fans have had enough. They have kind of reached that point where we can't blame the manager anymore. We can't just blame the players because they're the ones turning out for us. They're not going anywhere. And, you know, there there is a huge dissatisfaction with the board and particularly the owners. I think... I'm going to play devil's advocate here, actually. And I don't think the owners, whoever they are, have actually done anything different to what they said they would do. They made it very clear from the outset that we would be a club that would effectively run itself based on the money that it it brought in from being in the Premier League. In fact, I would go as far as saying that we went over that the one thing I'll say about Jeremy Peace is that he never once invested his own money, never went over what he would deem the budget to give us that extra player or do something that will put us in financial hock. These guys did in 2018 and we paid for it because the problem was that actually we didn't, it wasn't that we didn't spend, we did spend, we, we gave Jagosz Krychowiak a 100 grand a week deal. We gave Daniel Sturridge 100 grand a week for six months. We paid a lot of money for certain players, Burke, others on big money, on big fees as well. We spent a lot. Problem is we spent it badly. We recruited badly. We recruited the wrong manager. We recruited the wrong technical director. We recruited the wrong players who weren't suited for what the managers of that time wanted. So they have invested. Now, I think the big problem, in my view, over the last year or so, two, three years, has been, A, the lack of clarity about our ownership, which we've discussed in, in some detail here with between ourselves, but also with, with Kieran McGuire, a football finance expert. But also, and this is probably the big one, the lack of visibility. You know, you want to see your owner there. You want to see your chief executive, top brass, sat shivering away when you're losing 3-0. I mean, we played Villa at Villa Park a couple of years ago in the, in the playoff semi-final. We didn't have a single director from the club there that day, apart from the communications director who, who was there in a working capacity. To have a board of directors who are so little invested. Now, we've had changes since then, and actually a few of those directors have left. Mark Miles, Lee Pugh and um, Juki are the directors. The owner who is often cited or of the chief controller of the club is cited as Lai, Guchan Lai. We don't, you know, Mark Miles goes to matches, I believe Zhu Ki has and Li Pu have. 
but the lack of visibility of the owner and the lack of communication from the club, the lack of focus around where the club is heading and all of these things we've discussed, that for me is a huge issue and I can totally, totally understand why a section of fans have now decided to react. And by the way, Adrian, it takes a lot to piss our fans off to this degree. I've not seen a protest about our or against our board since the 1990s, probably the early 1990s to, to this extent. You know, we moaned about how we moaned about Summers, but they were Albion people. They kind of got a bit of a free pass in that respect. But you have to go back to the John Silk period of 1991 when Bobby Gould was manager to see this level of anger. And it's simmering away. And I fear it will get worse, and which is why on the field, we, you know, you have to hope we get the results. They have to hope we get the results because this will keep bubbling away. And, you know, despite the win on Saturday, we are going to see some protests against Reading and beyond, I would expect. Well, I've been speaking to Luke Morris, who is the organiser of the protest. He's, he's an Albion fan from Wensbury. He's 25. And he just feels that the club is withering on the vine at the moment. And I think most of us would recognise that feeling. In terms of the financials that you're talking about, I mean, last season, over the last financial year, Albion lost 23 million quid, just under 24 million quid, actually. They made a loss for three years in a row. I think they made a small loss the season before in the, the season that you're talking about, because, of course, although they did pay those extravagant wages, a lot of that was covered by the TV money. That was the the relegation season. Then we got a promotion season where, for most of it, we couldn't have fans in the ground or for the running, we couldn't have fans in the ground. So, obviously, that hit the finances and there was an attempt to push the boat out and get back into the Premier League. And then we come down again. So, you're right. I mean, they certainly never made any kind of Newcastle-style promises to spend whatever it takes to achieve success. They essentially insisted that the business model of the club would continue as before. I think the difference is is that although there are no doubt very good grounds to criticise Jeremy Peace and particularly for the sale, and he was no football expert, but he was a clever man and he made sure that he surrounded himself with people who knew football. And he also ensured, partly because he wanted to sell the club, that the infrastructure of the club was strong, by which I mean the training facilities, the scouting regime. Albion were run at a level of almost ruthless professionalism. And I mean that in a good way under Jeremy Pease. And that's the difference now, isn't it? We've got people who say, we're not going to spend money we haven't got. Okay, fair enough. But actually they're losing money then that they haven't got. And there's a sense of drift about the club. And that's the thing that has angered many supporters. And Luke says that he's really fed up as a fan. He's, he's going to stop going to home games. And I think that's the real danger for Albion is that I know there'll be some fans who say, what's the point of protesting against owners who are thousands of miles away in China and who are never going to see the protest? Well, as fans, what else can you do? At least this says, as a fan group, we care passionately about this club. But it, I think it's partly about a bit of self-respect as a fan group saying, we're not going to put up with this. But there will be disillusionment. There will be disenchantment unless these issues are addressed. And people like Luke will stop going to the games. And that ultimately will 
hit the owners. And they will feel that if we're out the Premier League and our gates are declining because they're not communicating, because they're not visible, they'll notice that and their hope of ever getting anything like the money they paid for the club back one day will simply disappear. Yeah, and and the problem you've got is that at the moment fans care. Those fans are, are caring enough to want to challenge the club. There'll come a time where they might not. I should say, Luke, Luke, who I spoke to, by the way, is absolutely adamant he wants any protest to be peaceful. Now, I've said on social media in the last few days, and not particularly relating to this proposed protest, but I support any peaceful protest against Albion's current ownership because I don't think they're taking the club anywhere. And I think as a fan group, I think it's on us. I think we need to show there is the passion, there is the love, there is the care for the club out there, rather than the sullen, apathetic drift away from the Hawthorns. Now, Luke was absolutely clear. He wants no violence, absolutely none. Good. I support him on that. He also said that he's he's worried that if there is a protest before the Reading game, that some fans will turn up with pyros, you know, with the sort of colourful fireworks that fans sometimes let off when a goal has been scored. And he's worried that that might then become a source of confrontation with the police. And I agree with him because fans might let those off. That gives the police then an excuse or an opportunity to arrest people, that then becomes a public order issue rather than a peaceful protest. So he is saying, and I would back him 100%, if you are going to join this protest, please don't bring any pyros. Now, the original location of the protest had been mentioned as alongside the East Stand, and it was suggested that there'd be a one thirty start for the protest. Luke is going to meet a representative of West Midlands Police at the Hawthorns on Wednesday now because the East Stand is, of course, the club's property. So he can't have a, a protest on the club's property without the club's permission. So it is possible that the protest might be away from the, uh, the East Stand, that it might be somewhere like Halfords Lane. But he also said that they're talking about the protest starting at noon rather than one thirty, which, of course, is very early on a match day. I'll be uh, running the line at my daughter's game at that time, probably. Again, part of the purpose of that is to make sure that people don't just turn up having been to the pub tanked up. So I think they're trying to be responsible about it. What impact it will have, I don't know. But, you know, as long as there are no idiots there, then it's a way, as a fan group, of saying, we want change, we want positive change for our football club. Yeah, and everyone's got a right to protest and I can, as I said at the top of this, I can totally understand their frustrations and good luck to them. You know, I hope it has the desired effect. I suspect it will all be a little bit in vain because we know Diona wants out. We know that the club isn't really in a place where it wishes to invest right now and won't and probably, you know, until we get back to the Premier League if we get there this season. So it's going to be... I think it's going to be a, a source of frustration from from all fans, really, this coming period. Hopefully, we can get back to the Premier League and, and that will see some change in the climate and some change in the, in, in the value of the club that might enable these people to maybe find an easier way out and, and sell it once and for all. All right, then, uh, before we crack on, by the way, to the trivia question, just a reminder, Christmas is coming, but not everybody's going to be able to celebrate in style. So please have a thought for those people, many of them helped by the Smedic Food Bank, which serves the communities closest to the Hawthorns. They're 
after all kinds of dried foods and toiletries and other sorts of stuff to help people in need all year round, really. Go and have a look at their website, smedic.foodbank.org.uk, to see what foodstuffs and what other items they particularly need at the moment, and also the locations close to the Hawthorns where you can actually drop off any goods that you've got to offer them. That's smedic.foodbank.org.uk. Trivia question from last week. Go on. We play Coventry. And I mentioned the 7-1 victory in 1978. I asked you to name the five goal scorers in that 7-1 victory for Albion. Okay, this is from Toby Davis, who got in touch. He emailed goldbergradio at gmail.com. Thank you, Toby. He says, Regis 2, Cunningham 2, Cantello, Brown, T, that's in Tony Brown rather than Ali Brown, and Statham were the scorers against Coventry in 1978-7-1. I think Coventry was sixth in the table at the time, says Toby, and their team contained a number of internationals, such as Jim Holton, who later later ran a couple of pubs in Coventry, Steve Hunt, Tommy Hutchinson, Terry Yorath up front were Ferguson and Wallace, who I think of as little and large compared to Keegan and Toshak, who were more Morecambe and Wise. <laughs> Two reasons why a strong side lost so heavily. They wore a chocolate brown kit and we were brilliant. Some of the footage is on the documentary about Lincoln Tello's testimonial, not seen all the goals since Midlands today, the Monday after the game in 1978. So Regis Cunningham, Cantello, Tony Brown and Statham were the five scorers. I'm with Toby, yes? Correct. I was at that game. Brilliant. I wouldn't have got the five, but I would have had a good go. <laughs> Very good. Well, you've got a question this week, unusually. I have, I have. I was um, out, I had a very good night out with my mates on Friday night and uh, I was just talking about Andre Gray's goal because he was a player who's linked with us in the summer. He's got a fantastic goal for QPR against Derby. It was a brilliant goal. He had his back to goal. There was a little flick up, a little control on the knee, and then on the turn, a kind of volley over his shoulder, nestled in the corner of the net. It was just one of those goals that you, when as a kid, you used to buy those comic books and they pictured incredible goals that are unlikely ever to happen in real life, except that in this case it did. It was a wonderful goal. And it put me in mind of Frank Worthington's classic goal for Bolton in the mid-70s, late-70s, against Ipswich Town. Anyway, if you don't know that goal, and indeed if you don't know Andre Gray's goal, go and have a look on YouTube. Worthy's goal is there. Absolutely brilliant kind of keepy-uppy, couple of keepy-uppies, and then a fantastic shot on the turn. So that put me in mind. You know, you know what question I'm going to ask about this, don't you? It's one of two. You're either going to ask who the ball boy was, or you're going to ask who the former Albion or future Albion manager was in the Bolton team that day. Oh, no, go! I didn't know that one. The future Albion manager in the Bolton team uh, on that day when Frank Worthington scored that mighty goal. I think I, think I know that one, actually. I, I've got a good idea who that was. When Albion beat, when Bolton beat Ipswich and Frank Worthington scored that amazing goal. No, the question was the ball boy one. There was somebody at that ground, uh, which I'm guessing was then still Burnden Park, when Bolton beat Ipswich, there was a ball boy who later went on to play for Albion. Who was it? There you go. No prizes for guessing, just a bit of fun. Goldbergradio at gmail.com. It does kind of put you in mind, though, of the, the greatest goal you've ever seen scored. Mine, by the way, I should stress, was not an Albion goal, the greatest goal I've ever seen scored. Go on. 
Marco Van Basten Euro '88 yeah. final. I was at the uh, the Olympic Stadium in Munich. Netherlands beat Russia, I think it then was, or the Russian Federation, 2-0. And he's just inside the right-hand touchline. The ball comes to him. And I'm sitting almost in line with it. And you can see his shaping to shoot. And you think, there's no, what are you doing, idiot? You've got no chance of scoring that. Next thing you know, the ball is in the back of the net. Just the most incredible volley by Marco Van Basten. One of those goals that's just... Brilliant, because it's just so out of nowhere and utterly changed the course of a game. That's the best goal I've ever seen. What you got? Do you know what? It's actually the same goal. I'll give I'll give you another one. It was that Van Basten goal. I mean, not only the the strike, the pass from Muren, the strike by Van Basten, the flailing Dasayev in the Soviet Union goal, and the reaction of Renus Michaels, who was one of the greatest managers of all time. You weren't there in the stadium, though, watching it like I was, though, were you? No, I wasn't. At school, actually. And the the other one was a little bit earlier than that, and it was um, Mark Hughes. And Mark Hughes didn't do normal goals. Every goal he seemed to score involved some kind of acrobatic folly. Mark Hughes scored the most stupendous goal for Wales against Spain. I think it was at Wrexham at the racecourse ground. And... It's just the most phenomenal goal I think I've seen a British, a British player score. It was sensational. But that Van Basten goal was just everything about it is beautiful. From from the moment Muren crosses it in to the manager's reaction, superb. Yeah, I think I described it in off-the-ball fanzine at the time as an impossible goal from the far side of nowhere. It was just, just like, what? You can't have scored that. And yet he did. Brilliant, brilliant play, Van Basten. Before we go, just a reminder, Christmas is coming. We have sold a couple in the last week, by the way. You've got your chance to buy your fantastic Liquidator Podcast T-shirts and mugs. Just put Liquidator Podcast T-shirt or Liquidator Podcast mug into your search engine and you too can have uh, a T-shirt or a mug celebrating the finest West Bromwich Albion podcast, if you don't mind us saying so. So uh, all helps us pay for the uh, the fees involved in keeping this podcast going, really, which are, as I was doing my accounts this week, Chris, not insubstantial when you start tossing up all the podcasting mm. fees. So uh, there we go. One final thought, by the way. I watched the Coventry game with my mate Mike, and he was drinking 0% Guinness. I was too polite to upbraid him. But what is the point of drinking alcohol-free beer or alcohol-free stouts in that case? What is the point? I have no idea. On which note, by the way, I met um, a mate of mine who lived or shared a house with at uni. He's a big Coventry fan. He works for Sky Sports these days. And I met him after the game in this brilliant place called the Sky Blue Tavern in the centre of Coventry. And it is like a shrine to Coventry City, as the name might suggest. It is wall-to-wall, covered in memorabilia, old programme covers, each booth, there's booths, and each booth was named after a player. By coincidence, we were in the Regis booth. They've got seating from the old Highfield Road. And it just made me think, you know, the potential for to do something like that, you know, at the Hawthorns and what they could have done with a Hawthorns pub next door to create something like that. You know, the Hawthorns house or hotel or hostel, whatever you want to call it, they could have done something so brilliant with that building. And and it just goes to show Coventry did it, you know, they're 
not far from the old Highfield Road. And it is an absolutely great place for Coventry fans. And they're a club that haven't been in a good place for many years. It's a new venture that started. They play Scar, they play all the two-tone stuff on the speakers. It's just got a brilliant atmosphere and Albion should look at doing something like that. It would be brilliant to get a real Albion-centric venture like that in a, a local building. Yeah, yeah, of course. They, uh, another even more local pub than the Hawthorns Hotel was the Woodman, which I have to say, I mean, right in the corner of the ground, was a bit of a dump in its latter days. Clearly was left to go to rack and ruin a little bit, but a pub sort of within the environs of the stadium, which they knocked down to make a car park for the players because the players couldn't bear to cross the road. I'm just thinking as well, when you talked about the booth, it's just good job that... Tommy Booth never played for Coventry because you'd have been sitting in the Booth booth. Well, absolutely. <laughs> anyway, food for thought, drink for thought. If you can tell me why people drink 0% alcohol, I'm all ears. Uh, thanks, Chris. See you next time. Cheers.